Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. So would you take your Bibles with me? And we are going to Genesis. And in Genesis chapter... Eight, Genesis chapter 9. This is a teaching series we've entered into in a three-month teaching series that will end in just a couple of weeks. We've got one more session after this. And in Genesis, we have been not only going through the stories of Genesis, but we, have trying to been, we are trying to answer the questions being asked in relation to Genesis. So I have probably, there's been, I'm thinking we probably already addressed probably 25 or 30 major questions that have come out of the first uh, seven chapters. Uh, the last section we talked of was in Genesis 6 and 7 around the flood. From that flood period, we move into today's lesson where it's post-flood, we want to talk about that. But I thought we'd start off with a bit of a lighter note with some heavenly humor. Question, how do we know that they played cards on Noah's Ark? How do we know that they played cards on the Ark? Answer, because Noah sat on the deck. Question, why didn't Noah go fishing? Answer, he only had two worms. Last, the ark was built in three stories. The top one had a window to let in light. How did the bottom two stories get light? Answer, they used floodlights. That was low. Okay, that was low. So on that, I'm going to put up here, these are the resources we've been using over the series of Genesis 1 to 11 and avail yourself of them. We're going to go now to Genesis chapter 8, starting at verse 1. The first four words are words I can never tire of. But God remembered Noah. Don't you like it when God remembers us? (laughs) I'll come back to that, what that actually means. It's not necessarily what it looks like. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. He sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. I want to go back to the beginning of that. God remembers Noah. That does not mean he ever forgot Noah, as some would suggest. Sometimes we think we're forgotten in the midst of difficult times. Where are you, God? You have forgotten me. And you will read that as a recurring theme even in some of the poetic writings in the Psalms and Proverbs. Where are you, God? Why do you hide your face from me? 
the picture is that God forgot me. And so, but here it says God remembers Noah. The word remember is a Hebrew idiom meaning that God began to act again on his behalf. That's very important. Whenever you read that in scripture, God remembers. It's not that he's withheld. It's that he's now acting again on your behalf. Because there's an appointed time. There is a perfect time. And so God began to act again on behalf of Noah. For a period of time it looked like not. The Bible says God made the wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. That does not mean the wind sucked up all the water. That does not mean that. It is unlikely the wind caused all of that to decrease. But as mentioned back in a previous session, the world, the globe, pre-flood was primarily smooth. Allowing the waters to cover it quickly. Conversely, at the end of the global flood, the surface rises up. This is a catastrophic event that has never been even closely matched at any time in our history. The event of the flooding and what took place as the oceans opened up, the tectonic plates pulled apart, and the waters came up, the waters came down, and the earth flooded. The earth could flood, and easily, as they say, there is more than enough water right now in all our seas to cover the entire face of the planet if the mountains were down. And so the picture here is that as the winds began to blow, in the time of the blowing of the winds, there is conversely something taking place. The surface of the earth is now not the surface it was a few months prior. The surface is cresting and, and heaving and pulling apart. At flood times, we see evidence of this catastrophic plate tectonics producing mountains and we waters flowing out of the midst of mountains, gaps of the mountains, finding any way to come out of those mountains. This may be where we get Psalms 104 verse 6, where the psalmist had a picture of this. He says, you covered with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. Verse 3. The flood abates. The water's receding. This took a long time. The waters just didn't disappear. Actually, it's more than 110 days because only after 150 days were the waters abated. This is a long time. Once again, evidence that this was not a local flood. This was a global flood. Verse 4, the ark touches land. There has been endless speculation of where Mount Ararat is. Is it a country? Is it a region? Is it a mountain? Is it a post-flood volcano? There's entire volumes written on all of them. And the answer? We don't know. Because the Bible never told us. And really it's not important. It's not important to know if the ark is still there. I mean, think about it. Do you really think the ark is still there? I mean, seriously. Finding the ark is not only unnecessary, it would be a problem. 
You see, we as people have a tendency to make more out of relics than we should. Don't we? Crosses. You've heard things, you know, somebody found a cloth that was part of the cloak on Jesus when he died, and so they've made shrines around them. On and on. We saw this in Numbers 21. They had this image of a serpent, and if you look to it, you could be healed. That was God's provision. And the next thing you know, they're bowing down and worshiping this image. You have Moses up on the mountain. By the time he comes down with the tablets, they're worshiping calves, and they're calling these things the same sacred name they call God, Yahweh. They just didn't use another name for God. They used the sacred name Yahweh, and they were worshiping a relic. We have a tendency to worship relics. Ever wonder why we can't find contrary to, to uh, uh, who plays an Ark of the Covenant? Um, Indiana Jones, who plays? Harrison Ford. <sighs> contrary to Indiana Jones, we do not know where the Ark of the Covenant is, nor will we. Why? Because we would worship it. Maybe not you and I, but many would. And so God will keep them lost for our sake. Why would he allow a substitute for what is real? The ark touches down, another 74-day pass, and the mountains now start to become visible. Noah first sends out a blackbird to see if the ground's dried up. It comes back. Does it again. Eventually, it doesn't return, which means there's rotting flesh to land on. It can survive without the ark. Well, that doesn't help Noah a whole lot, so he sends out a dove. The dove are strong in flight. They can fly for hundreds of miles. They can do hours of flight without having to land. Well, it's a good thing because the dove came back to the ark. Couldn't land. Sent the dove a little bit later. Dove came back again. Couldn't land. Sent the dove out the third time. Third time, the dove does not return, meaning somewhere there's dry ground. We come to verse 13. Bible makes reference... It's the roof. When it makes reference of the window, it's the roof. Noah removes the roof of the ark. Then in verse 15, God commands them to disembark the ship. Now the humans are ready to face post-flood world. I've paused when I was putting this together. I hadn't honestly really thought a lot about it. What that must have been like. What that must have been like for them coming off of the ark after these many months on the ark, coming off, what will you find? Would have been something. Anyway, that's, you know, and again, there's movies out there. Please do not take the Hollywood version of Noah's, Noah, I think it was called. It came out just a few years ago. I'm going to estimate that somewhere between, a different estimate, I've heard these, between 70 to 90% of it is inaccurate. 70 to 90% is inaccurate. What the post-flood world would have looked like coming off of the boat would have been something else. These humans had to be ready for it. I want to talk about, first of all, two significant topics. Number one, speciations. Number two, the Ice Age. First of all, I want to talk about speciation, the species. species. I want to talk particularly here, and the ne- our last session, I'm going to talk about human 
uh, about how our nationalities are developed. But I want to mention here regarding animals, because it does give some reference. When the animals went on the ark, it says they went on according to their kind. And it's estimated that less than 16,000 animals were on the ark. Uh, because it's not how many different within the species or the variations, but the kind. The cat kind has multiple variations. Uh, you know, the uh, canine, multiple variations, and on and on and on. But now when they come off the ark, they disperse. They move into broader species and they congregate within their kinds. All offspring inherit this incredible genetic pool. And I'm not going to pretend to get my head around this, but I'm going to tell you a little about what I've read. Regarding genetic information, now I, Wayne, my genetic information that I have today, half of it came from my mother, half of it came from my father. Okay, we know that. How much is that? Well, there is about 25,000 genes my father gave me, and 25,000 genes of information my mother gave me. Each gave me 25,000. I have about 50,000. I'm blessed. Now, I can only ever pass on 25,000 to the next line. But there's about 25,000 from the mother, 25,000 from the father. That is enough information equivalent to 1,000 volumes of encyclopedia. That is each volume being 500 pages. So that is 1,000 encyclopedias of 500 page information passed down through our parents. So for every 1,000 gene pairs coding for any trait, 67 of the pairs have different forms, different allelos, they call it, allelos, which is different forms that can come out. These are multiple choices that can come out. That's a lot. Illustration. You have blue eyes. Your spouse, let's say they have brown eyes. The allelos, the forms, combine create multiple possibilities of the next generation's color of eyes. Any single human could produce a vast number of different possibilities, sperm, egg cells. The possibilities are 10 to the power of 504. That's 504 zeros after the 10 of possibilities of the color of eyes. It's staggering. Speciations account for the development of animal kind and variations and how they have risen to what we see today in the uniquenesses of their characteristics. This is duplicated today on a much smaller scale by isolating populations of species. You want a dog with no fur? We can get you one. How do they do it? They isolate, isolate, re-isolate, 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 no more fur. You want a dog with a big snout? We can get you. You want a dog with no snout? That too. Want dogs with the eyes out the side instead of out the front? We can do it. You want a dog big feet, small feet? We can do it. A tail, no tail. Ears, no ears. One eye white, one eye brown. We can do it. Right? Isn't that true? How do they do it? They separate. 
and they interbreed within the separation, and eventually all the other balanced genes are not there anymore. That's why pure breeds are so prone to be sick because they don't have good DNA in them. They've been so focused in purity for that particular breed, there's not a good balance. Laura and I, we got a dog years ago. We just called it a mutt. It was a mutt. It was a who knows what it was. And it was pretty healthy for those years. While we, you know, purebreds, they just are prone to be very expensive, even after you pay that money for them, because they isolate them. And it's the same thing that took place post-flood. The species ran off to their kinds, and isolations began to take place naturally, forming broad spectrum of the varieties of animals that we see today. Kind of interesting stuff. Well, we have then, let's, let's talk about the Ice Age. Was there an Ice Age? I can't tell you for sure, but there is strong evidence there was. Strong evidence that ice and snow covered much of Canada, northern United States, northwest Eurasia, Greenland, and Antarctica. They were covered. Evolutionists would have us believe there were multiple ice ages. Going to suggest that more than likely it was advanced retreat cycles of the same ice age. And it gave the characteristic multiple ice ages. Let's look at this for a second. When all the fountains of the deep broke up, what took place, the after effects were, again, quite catastrophic. Much hot water and lava would have poured freely into our oceans. This would have warmed our oceans, increasing evaporation. At the same time, volcanic eruptions releasing massive amounts of ash and gas into the air post-flood. This would have blocked out sunlight for extended periods of time. This would have cooled the land. The land would have been cooled, and it would result in increased snowfall over continents. Increased snowfall, it's falling faster than the snow is melting. Ice is building up. This is lasting not for years, decades. We're talking centuries. It's lasting for centuries. It is estimated that approximately 500 years after the flood, the seas cooled, evaporation set in, Ice sheets began the melting process 500 years post-flood. This then began to form what we have today, our lakes. Thus, you see the Great Lakes in Canada. We have the greatest amount of fresh water in the world. And, but because it directly relates back to the Ice Age, you look at all the different places and you see where they have the lakes. And thus, the Ice Age creating that after a melt-off of a half a millennia later. We can even see some of these things evidenced today, and this is how we come up with these answers. Spokane, flood. Water like this has tremendous destructive powers. The ancient lake Missoula in Montana burst an ice dam in Idaho where 500 cubic miles of water poured westward at the speed of an express train. It created the Spokane flood. It eroded 200 kilometers of sediment and bedrock, carving out elaborate channels of scab lands in eastern Washington state. It's been documented. We have the Grand Coulee, again, a 50-mile-long stretch, one to six miles wide, steep walls, 900 feet, chiseled through basalt and granite. We still have evidence, lots of it. Let's talk about Noah's building the ark or building the altar after coming off the ark, because the Bible makes reference to he built an altar. 
And this is the first mention of an altar built. Altar, the word altar, simply means a place of slaughter. A place of slaughter meant for sacrifice. And upon this altar, Noah offers a sacrifice of representatives. Probably one or one pair of each kind of clean animal. And God resolves never to flood the earth again. Now this is a very interesting part right here. God resolves never flood the earth again. We go back to chapter 6 verse 5. God had said that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. That's the reason of the flood. But here, it's not saying that man's heart is going to be good from here on in. But here, even though our hearts, I'm going to read that again, every intention of the thoughts of man's hearts are only, was only evil continually. This would no longer be reason that God would wipe us out again. Even though there would be times that would take place, God says, I will not do the flood again. I make my covenant to you. That part is done. The flood is over. Because here's the issue. We do sin. We are intentions and thoughts of our hearts. Many times are evil continually. That continues to happen. Sadly, the root of the problem is sin. Has been and is and will be until God transforms this world. Sin was never eliminated, and sin will reoccur time and time again. And here's the point, I guess. Our existence, your and my existence here today, 2020, our existence and our coming to church and our praying and praying for others is not because we're good. It's nothing that you have done. we not got to remember that. You can't earn it. It's because God is good, 100%. He has done it all. Sin still resides in all of us, and if you question that, ask your husband or wife if sin resides in you. It resides in all of us. We are sinners. We are saints that sin. Saints that sin. And in our place of that, we know that we must fall upon His mercy Always falling upon Him. So our existence is not something we have earned by being good, but rather our existence is because God is long-suffering and God is forbearing. That's why I'm alive today and you are too. And Genesis chapter 9. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you... Mark that in your Bible. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds of the sky, creatures that move along the ground and all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Okay, let me talk about that for a moment. God gives a blessing to both Noah and his sons. That is so important. And over and over, it's not just Noah. It's not just Noah. It's Noah and his sons. Noah and his sons. Noah and his sons. The reason is, is the sons have to carry this on. The descendants have to carry this on. They are the reproducing after the flood. And here you have a similarity in verse 1 of chapter 9 to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, 
it says, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth in Genesis 1. I think it's in 128. Be fruitful and increase in numbers and fill the earth, Genesis 1. And then here we have it again, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. But there's a stark difference between these two verses. The difference is seen in verse 2 of chapter 9. Verse 2, chapter 9, the fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth. That is not in chapter 1. Big difference happened here. You see, the big difference here, originally God created the world very good. There was perfect harmony between man and beast, pre-sin. Perfect harmony between man and beast. But the fall of Genesis chapter 3 ruined that harmony forever. We are no longer in harmony with each other. We're no longer in harmony with nature. It ruined it. Cataclysmic judgment upon this world. And now instead of this harmony in Genesis 1 and 2, note verse chapter 9, verse 2, there's fear and dread. That's the new reality. There's fear and dread. The word fear is the word, fear doesn't even come close. The word fear is terror. There is terror. So we read verse 2. The terror and dread of you will fall. The terror. And one reason may well be what follows. Because mankind would now be allowed to eat animals. We did not prior to that. Now we are allowed to eat animals. And at this point, now animals could eat animals after the fall. But not could man eat animal until this point where God now gives permission. Because God said, I give you everything. Now, I'm going to say something here. Permit it does not mean mandate it. Permit it does not mean mandate it. Thus allowing people to refuse to eat animals if they want. But they are permitted to eat animals. This applies to freedom. We see this Paul deals with this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Let's go to that, because this is a relevant passage for today. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. There are, these are shadows of the things that were to come. A reality, however, is found in Christ. Go down to verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elementary spiritual to the uh, elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rulers or to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining restraining sensual indulgence. But God does give one absolute restriction in chapter 9. Abstain from blood. That is still lasting. We go down to verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again 
will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood? Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And the sign was a rainbow. Question often asked, were there rainbows before the flood? Bible doesn't mention, the first mention of a rainbow is here. But the silence does not mean that there was no rainbow. Likely there was because we all know the science of rainbow from physics today. Light enters at an angle into a substance where it travels more slowly, produces a rainbow. Glass prisms. We can look at a field after the falling of rain. We see rainbow, the mist, the sea sprays. If you stand at the ocean, it hits the rocks. You see rainbow, right? It's physics. Verse 18. This is about Noah's descendants. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Now, back in chapter 7, verse 13, God mentions these sons by name going into the ark. He mentions the three names going into the ark. Now, He mentions them by name coming out of the ark. He is demonstrating this, that all humanity will descend from these three, and these three only. I say that to debunk that there were other people still alive. That's why God said three went in, Three came out, and from then the descendants of humankind. He specified that. From them only would the races of mankind reproduce. But this time we see a new name. One of the grandsons, Canaan. This now demonstrates that time has passed since coming off the ark, when we get to 18 and 19, since coming off the ark, the grandsons are now grown kids. Time has passed. Grandsons are now mentioned. And the narrative comes back to Canaan a little bit later. Chapter 9, verse 20. We see about Noah's moral failure. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. After the flood, Noah takes on a new occupation. He was a carpenter for a number of years. New occupation, he began to be a man of the soil. Being a man of the soil, he planted a vineyard. Planting a vineyard, Genesis record, Noah sinned by becoming intoxicated. Became drunk. This is the part I personally like about the Bible. Unlike most every other ancient book, the Bible does not hide the faults of the heroes. Because they are not the focus. God is the focus. And you have other ancient documents and their heroes, you know, are like, they try to paint them as sinless and stuff. But God doesn't. <laughs> He's just like, nope, these people have problems. Moses, murderer. David, adulterer, full of pride. Oh yeah, murderer too. Uh, Peter, he's a liar. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. After each of those ones I just mentioned, when they were rebuked by God, they fell on His mercy and repented. That's the difference. They fell on His mercy, quite unlike Cain. Because when Cain sinned, God said to him, Cain, beware, beware, you can turn this around for good. Sin is crouching to take you, saying, Cain. And Cain 
did nothing. That's God's mercy. It's not that we will sin. It's that His mercy is new every morning. And I embrace it. That today, when I sin, I fall on His grace. I don't take advantage of His grace by sinning. But when I fail, I call on His name and He is faithful. Praise God. That's a, Man, we can preach that one. And God is faithful and we see this is true. Now, what is even worse than Noah's drunkenness is that sin leads to greater sin. Always has, always does. Devil will tell you just do a little, it'll be okay, but it's never, it never works that way. Sin leads to greater sin because typically people are involved. And likewise, the story with Noah, it led to further shame. He became naked. Now, ever since Adam and Eve fell, nakedness in public was regarded as shameful. So, verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward, covering their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way, so they would not see their father's naked. See their father naked. So, here we have Ham spots his dad butt naked. But the text suggests much more than him seeing him. As a matter of fact, looked up the word saw. The word in Hebrew saw is better translated looked at. Another trans we could gawked. A sense of violating a boundary. It's not just having seen it, but it's staring, beholding it. That's the picture word saw. Ham compounded his sin by staring, then to try to shame his dad by telling the older sons. And so he goes with the two and he tries to shame the father. It didn't work. Praise God, Shem and Japheth were more righteous men than their brother Ham was. Their righteousness was a righteousness after their dad, Noah. Noah wasn't perfect. This was not a good scene for Noah. But he was still called a righteous man. And the two other sons in righteousness did not bow to this disgrace. They would honor their father by following his example and following the true example of God. They immediately took steps to cover their father's weakness and restore his honor. And they didn't even speak. Silent rebuke to Ham, and they refused to join in Ham's sin. The text goes on to state that when Noah learned of all this, he cursed the descendant line of Canaan, Ham's youngest. Prophetically speaking, we see this lived out in the extended line of Canaan. And we can, we can look at their history. This would come years later, but we can look back to this. And their history, they were a revolting people. I'm going to throw up about five scriptures on on the PowerPoint here, I'm not going to read them. Genesis 15, Genesis 18, Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 12. These are passages that talk about the lineage of Canaan, a despicable group of people. History proves they became utterly debased. They burned their own children to the idol Molech. You read of it. So God eventually commanded their absolute annihilation. However, in the midst... Again, God's mercy. In the midst of even the Canaanites, 
in the midst of such a debased people, God continued to reach out with mercy. We see this in the picture of the story of Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute, was from the tribe of Cana. And Rahab, the prostitute, fell on the, on the faith of the fathers of the Hebrew children. And Rahab, the prostitute, would become the foremother of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. Wow. Isn't God good? No respecter of persons to those that call on his name. And then in verse 28, Noah dies. After the flood, he lives 350 more years, lives a total of 950 years, and dies. His total lifespan, 950. He's third only to Methuselah at 969, Jared at 962, Noah 950. And as, and we're just going to bring conclusion to this, our last session, we're going to move into talking about the last, the last of the, the, the generations. We see that Noah had 16 generations recorded grandsons. They would be the progenitors of the various people groups and the nations around the world. We have this recorded in Genesis 10. It's kind of a laborsome chapter to Genesis 10. Not until you get to Genesis 11, we will see the reason for the different groups of people because we're going to come to the division of Babel. A tower is built, it's destroyed, the people disperse, and we're going to see a lot of things come out of all of this. We're going to see an exponential decay of lifespans. No longer are they living for hundreds of years. They come down to 100, 150, and they decrease, 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 decrease. We're going to see a huge drop right at that point. Um, you see the grandsons of Noah, who are still ruling patriots of post Babel clans for several generations, but then immediately after that, the generations stop. The Tower of Babel, different language, families, um, the languages we have today flowing out of this particular thing. I'm going to get into a lot of detail about that in our last session. This is just downright fascinating to me um, regarding um, facial structures of the different uh, people groups of the world, um, body structures, uh, genetics that flow down through different pigments. I'm going to talk about, like I have a pigment, I, I freckle, and my light pigmentation versus brown pigmentation versus black pigmentation versus, versus polygamy versus all the different pigmentations. Um, talk about how do the Eskimos deal with brown pigmentations? How do those in Amazon jungles still have it? All that kind of stuff. How did you get languages? There's over 6,000 language groups today. But how does that flow off of the Tower of Babel and the development of the language groups? is an interesting study for another time. You have to join us on the last session. But I come to this part. I want to close. Actually, I'm not going to mention this in the next one. Um, there were populations, because of the Tower of Babel, who were cut off from city-dwelling groups. They would lose their technology that the humanity, the society as a whole had. Thus, cavemen and Neanderthals, the post-Babel humans, that, yeah, there was an existence of that because of the cutting off of people segments from technology. And, uh, but we're, another day. I want to close with how this whole story, the unfolding, and I wrote in my notes when I was finishing this, God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. He remains God. 
Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.